In the uh, passage that we're going to be looking at this evening, we're going to see somewhat of a controversial issue, particularly when it talks about the subject of healing. And I think that this uh, passage provides a helpful opportunity for us to think through uh, some of the issues that we talked through back when we did our conscience study earlier this year. And just thinking through the fact that um, there are differences between good Christian churches on a variety of issues. And um, sometimes those issues have to do with how a particular church culture has developed over time. Some of those have to do with misunderstandings of biblical doctrines. And in all of these circumstances, certainly we need to be wise and careful in the way that we approach these things so that we do not um, call fellow believers unbelievers. And at the same time, by God's grace, encourage people to think, what does the Bible say on a particular issue? That Let that be our rule. Let that be our guide. Because in so many of these issues, and particularly the one that we're going to look at tonight, there's a great deal of emotional attachment to a particular belief. And that can very quickly sway us to be convinced that a particular view is the right view because we feel very strongly about it. And so we need to always be careful to make sure that God's word uh, directs our thoughts along those lines. Um, I was thinking about that connected with uh, the subject of music as well. Bob and I had opportunity to attend uh, a conference earlier this year, and their um, musical style was somewhat different from what we would be comfortable with here. But I was encouraged by the fact that there were good Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who were eager and um, fervent in their worship of God, And uh, for those of us that tend to be more uh, traditional, I think that's the thing that we have room to work on is the fact that emotional expression before God, whether it be grief, whether it be joy, whether it be any of those things, is not automatically sinful. And perhaps for some of them, an area that they could consider is sometimes things that are chosen in some churches do not err on the side of reverence. And so there's a biblical balance there that we should always be striving to achieve. Our passage tonight talks about the issue in light of the earlier context of verses 7 through 11, and for that matter, the beginning of the book uh, in chapter 1, where James says that God is bringing trials into our lives to produce in us patience and endurance and eventually spiritual maturity. The immediate context is what we looked at recently in verses 7 through 12, with regard to the fact that we are going to go through times of difficulty, and when we go through those times of difficulty, it would be tempting for us to say that those who are bringing that difficulty into our lives, when it's specifically a kind of persecution, a kind of oppression in that regard, we don't have to treat them in a Christian way because they're sinners, and so we don't necessarily have to be honest with them in our words, Or perhaps we could even turn on one another and destroy the unity of the church because of the conflict and difficulty that we're going through. And James warned us against that in the passage last week. But he acknowledges the reality of suffering. So what is a proper response to suffering? And from the title of the message you have in your bulletin, the proper response to suffering, in fact, to all the circumstances of life, is to speak to God about them. And that will in turn lead to us addressing those things with those around us. So look at verse 13. Is anyone suffering? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Sing praises. So if you are suffering, what should you do? 
pray to God about it. It's not certainly the only thing that we can do in response to suffering, but that ought to be our default response when we're going through a difficult circumstance in life is to talk to God about it. On the other hand, perhaps we're going through a time of joy and a time of uh, we're just really excited about something. Maybe you get married, maybe you have your first child, maybe something goes really well at work, maybe some particular issue that was going on in your life gets resolved, you're excited about it, is your first response to look at yourself or to talk to other people or do you talk to God about it? Again, that should be our first response. And then we come to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? And we would ask, well, how does this differ from verse 13? The word there that's used for being sick uh, can either be spiritually weak or physically sick. The fact that he is, in verse 14, someone who appears to be bedridden, someone who needs to be raised up, and at the end of verse 15 has a conditional, if he has committed sins, would lean toward the reality that this is probably talking about physical sickness. Now, I know there's many commentaries that would take this as a spiritual weakness because they don't want to get into the issue of then are we supposed to do this today? And I'm not saying that they have no good reasons for that, but I'm convinced that this is talking about someone who is very physically sick. And James is saying, in that circumstance, what should you do? We need to remember that in James's context, this is one of the earliest books that was written in the New Testament. And so a lot of the parameters for church life were not yet widely established, at least not recorded for us like Paul would later do in the books of 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. So that's something to keep in mind. That doesn't mean that what was written earlier contradicts what came later, but it does mean that we have to consider the historical context in which this was written. This was early in the life of the church. You look through the book of Acts, and you see a number of notable miracles early on in the book of Acts, and then you see the number of those miracles tapering off to some extent, although you do see things like God's miraculous preservation of Paul, from uh, the viper that bites him when he's almost arrived at Rome, things like that. But a lot of the miraculous events that take place in the book of Acts take place in the first, let's say, 20 to 30 years of the church. There's several reasons for that. One is, the apostles are all still living, and the apostles were the ones who had been specifically appointed by God to go about testifying to God's word and part of their testimony was accompanied by miraculous power, healings and casting out demons and other things that Jesus himself had done, and this served to provide a link between their ministry and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, Can we do those things today? I would argue that there were three, perhaps four periods of time in which God had specifically appointed people to perform miracles. One was Moses, when he leads the people out of the land of Egypt. A second was the time of Elijah and Elisha. Now, many of the prophets did signs, but most of them did not do miracles. Uh, There are a few exceptions to that, but primarily the major concentration of miracles was in the ministry of Moses, the ministry of Elisha and Elijah, and then now the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, Some would see in uh, Paul's Uh, lack of relief from his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, 
that God was no longer doing miracles as he had previously done. I'm not sure that that is a complete argument because some people would see that as a sort of spiritual attack, not merely a physical one. We don't have time to go into all the details of that passage. The bottom line would be, I would make this argument. There is no one verse that says miracles happened in the early church, miracles don't happen in the modern day, largely because the Bible was written during the time frame of the early church. That being said, I would argue that because we don't have apostles today, because we don't have prophets today, there is not someone who's specifically appointed to carry out miracles in the way that we see in the book of Acts and in the context into which James wrote his letter. Why do I say there's no more apostles today? Because the criteria for apostles were they had to have a face-to-face encounter with Christ. According to Acts 1, had to have been someone who had observed all of Christ's ministry and were an eyewitness of the resurrection. Paul himself came to be an apostle in a slightly different sense, but he had that direct encounter with Christ and was a witness of Christ's resurrection, having confronted the risen Christ face to face. There is no one today who has observed Jesus' ministry firsthand. There is no one today that can claim to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ legitimately, and so there are no apostles today. What about prophets? We see examples of New Testament prophets. Uh, Agabus is one of these. Uh, We see him several times in the book of Acts. He, for example, tells us that they tells the early church that there would be a time of famine that takes place later on he says Paul if you go down to Jerusalem here's what's going to happen to you you're going to be bound in chains and here's the suffering that's going to come to you Um, there is no one today that is specifically authorized to give those prophecies as there was early in the history of the church and one of the primary reasons for that is God's word has been completed. We have what we need. There is no longer need for additional special revelation. People will say, well, what about so-and-so who claims to be a prophet today? What about so-and-so who claims to be an apostle today? The person that claims to be an apostle today is not an apostle in the New Testament sense of the word. The person that claims to be a prophet today is, in every instance that I am aware of, not a prophet in the sense of Deuteronomy 18 or a New Testament prophet because Getting something right 50% of the time might make you a good baseball player or a good meteorologist, but does not make you a prophet. Because a prophet had to be 100% of the time you were what you said came true. It had to be everything you said matched up exactly with what God's word had already said. It did not contradict it in any way. Or else you were a false prophet, which brought the death penalty in ancient Israel and in the early church was part of their command to test the spirits and and reject what is false. So there are not apostles, there are not prophets, there are not those who are specifically authorized to raise people up. Well, in James's day, it says it wasn't apostles, it wasn't prophets, it was the elders of the church. If they went to someone who was deathly ill, prayed over him, anointed him, he would be raised up. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. I'm not convinced that I have that power today. And that is going to sound like a contradiction to what I'm about to say to you about the rest of the passage, which is that we should come confidently before God in faith. 
but I am not convinced that the New Testament authorizes those in the present-day church to come before God and claim that he will heal people with the confidence and assurance that James expresses in this passage. For one, there is a contrast between the way that this is often practiced today and the attitude that I think James has here. What I mean by that is this. There are people today who will come before God and they will be convinced that if they say the right words, use the right inflections, follow the right formula, do the right ritual, God is honor bound to do exactly what they ask him to do. What kind of a position does that put them in in relationship to God? It's not a position of submission and acknowledgement of God's authority. It's an, a, a, often an arrogant expression of their own authority. Why is that important? Well, for example, when we encounter the Ephesians in the book of Acts, they are characterized by a belief in magical practices and an understanding, some of them Jews included, that if they just got the formula right, said the right name, used the right words, they could do all the things that the apostles were doing. Against that idea is the fact that the seven sons of the Jewish priest Sceva, who come to a demon-possessed man and say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, we cast you out, and then are hurled from the house, naked and bleeding on the street, all seven of them overpowered by this one man who's demon-possessed. Why did that take place? Because they didn't know Jesus, they didn't believe in him, and they had this attitude that if I just use Jesus' name, I'll get the result that I want. And God will not be treated that way. So where does that leave us with regard to this passage? I don't think that it is automatically wrong to have an elder or a pastor or several of the church to go to someone who is very sick and do what this passage says. I'm not convinced, given the difference in the context between when James was written and all the other things that I just went through, that we can say that it will have the guaranteed result that this passage talks about. And so the, in, along those lines, I would, I would be hesitant about doing this practice in connection with our church. That being said, should we come before God confidently in faith, expecting that he can and will answer prayer? Yes. We just can't come before God demanding that he answer prayer in the way that we want him to answer it. Think back to what it said at the end of chapter 4. If you say, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to do this thing and this is what the result is going to be, that's an arrogance that doesn't take into account verse 15 of chapter 4, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So I don't think James is trying to make these two ideas fight against each other. He is saying... We acknowledge God's authority to do what he wishes to do in a particular situation. We come confidently before God in prayer. And the primary focus was not even, I think, on the healing. Not every case of healing was connected with sin. But if you look at the larger context of James's book, there was a lot of sin happening that he kept dealing with, right? So I think James's primary focus is not even on the healing, which is what many make this passage about. It's about the issue of sin. Why do I say, say that? Verse 15, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verse 16, 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another so that you may be healed. Verse 19, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The two things are closely connected. If there was no sin, there would be no need for healing. There would be no reality of death in our lives today. Sin resulted from Adam and Eve disobeying God. God had said, if you eat from the tree, you will begin to die. They did it. They began to die. Death came to all men, as Paul says in Romans. Death is passed on to us today. That is why we grow old. That is why things in our bodies break down. That is why all of these physical sufferings exist in this world. In the time of the establishing of the early church, there were miracles of healing in which God demonstrated his power and the authority of the apostles and the reality of the early church as being the thing in which he was working in the world. What about us today? Does God have the power to miraculously heal people? I would say yes. Can we always recognize when he was, has done so? I would say no. Can we force him to do it in every instance today? No. Um, I think this comes up uh, in connection with uh, what we've been going through with regard to Maggie's cancer. There are people that we have observed over the last year whose children have gone through the same kinds of treatments and the same kinds of um, diagnoses, not necessarily the exact same type, but the same general category. And people talk about it in terms of war, battle, fighting, victory. But some of those kids don't win don't um, get past the battle. So where does that leave them? Do they not try hard enough? I don't think we would say that. Did they... Um, uh, there's just a whole a variety of responses. I think the connection point for me is this. Sometimes... We, um, we use that same sort of attitude and put it alongside a passage like this and basically say, if you just believe hard enough and if you just try hard enough, this will always be the outcome. And I think we would be misusing this text to treat it in that way. Why then does James write it to us? And if it does not have the same application for us today, or the same meaning that it did for his original hearers, what then is the application for us today? The application that holds true, regardless of whether we have divine authorization to bring healing to those who are suffering in our congregation, is this. Pray fervently to God. Why do I say that? Because God is the one who has the power to restore people. Verse 15, the Lord will raise him up. I say fervently, believingly, because verse 15 says the prayer offered in faith. Think back to what he said in chapter 1. If you come to God and ask for wisdom, you need to believe that God can give you wisdom, right? Because if you don't believe that God can give you wisdom, you're not going to get wisdom. That man is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He should not expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. 
in this same context, when we bring our requests before God, we ought to do so confidently, recognizing that he has the power and the ability and cares for us as his people to hear and to answer our requests. What's the relationship then between sin and suffering and sickness and all of those sorts of things? Particularly when it comes to physical suffering. It can be the result of my own sin. 1 Corinthians 11, right? Paul says there are some among you who are sick and who have even died because they did not take seriously and soberly the meaning of the receiving of the Lord's table, which we observed this morning in the service. They didn't take it seriously. They didn't come before me with a properly reverent attitude. That is why some of them are sick. That is why some of them are dead. So we cannot rule out the possibility that physical suffering, sickness of various kinds is connected with our sin. But that is not, I would say, even the majority of cases. God is not out there saying, as soon as you do something bad, I'm going to make you sick so you regret having done the bad thing. That's not the attitude of a parent toward his child, and I don't think that that reflects the picture of God that we see in the Bible. What are other reasons for physical suffering? Sometimes the result of sinful choices of other people. Um, think about perhaps the children of Israel as they suffered in slavery in the land of Egypt. Their physical suffering was not due necessarily to their sin, but to the sin of Pharaoh in mistreating them because he didn't want to listen to Moses' words. The same holds true today. Sometimes someone might suffer in the present world because someone near them doesn't take care of them, does something deliberately harmful to them, makes choices that affect their general health. There's a variety of circumstances that can result from other people making sinful choices immediately around us. Then there's a more general kind of suffering in which we encounter, for example, John 9, the man born blind. And the man born blind, the disciples want to know, did he do something or did his parents do something? The two circumstances that I just talked to you about Jesus said neither of these, but rather that God would be glorified. When we suffer largely because just we live in a sinful world, one of the primary things that God is doing is to bring himself glory in the way that he works in the midst of the trial. And the way that God is working is to draw us closer to him, whether it be dealing with sin, which is much of the focus of this passage, whether it be coming to trust in him more, whether it be expressing uh, forgiveness towards someone who has done terrible things toward us. None of these things is possible apart from God's work, and all of them are potentially things that he is doing in the context of suffering in sickness in this world. I do believe that we can and should follow what it says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We do not have in today's church, in my understanding, a 100% guarantee that if you're sinful and God brings physical suffering into your life and you repent of that sin, that everything connected with that sickness will go away. Um, 
if someone chooses to live in a moral lifestyle, there's all kinds of diseases that you can catch that you can't uncatch, for example. Um, if someone chooses to, uh, you know, disobey the law, get drunk, get into a car accident, there could be physical um, disabilities connected with that that are lifelong. But the verse does say we ought to be dealing with sin regularly amongst ourselves in order that we are in a place for God to work what he can do, which is to work in the midst of those circumstances. When it says confess your sins to one another, I don't think it's saying this. I'm going to go to Bob. I'm going to say, Bob, here's all the bad things I did this week. Paul, here's all the bad things I did this week. Mike, here's all the bad things I did this week. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is you confess your sins to the people that you have sinned against. Obviously, we confess them to God. And when we have confessed our sins to God and to the people that we've sinned against, if that is the occasion of our physical suffering... God is then free, not that he was not free before, but God is then in a place where he is willing, potentially, to remove that suffering because it has accomplished its purpose. The principle in verse 16, I think, is important. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer, as in a prayer that does something, of a righteous man, as in we are in a right relationship with God, can accomplish much. He gives us this example, Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, people have asked why this account from the life of Elijah, and not some of his more notable Feats like the opposition against the prophets of Baal when he calls down fire from heaven. Elijah's prayer for rain probably illustrates better the fervency and the diligence and the time period that's involved in following God faithfully. Why do I say that? If you say, God, can you bring down fire right now? There's an immediate response. Everybody sees it. And, and, I don't want to minimize the importance of that. But if you pray for God not to do something, what do you need to know if that prayer has been answered? You need time to observe, right? And that's what takes place in 1 Kings 17 and the three and a half years that elapse until the end of 1 Kings 18 when Elijah prays and God sends, sends the rain. And God told him to pray these things, interestingly enough. It wasn't just him saying, I'm going to pray this and see what happens. God had told him to pray these things. The lack of rain was judgment against Israel for their idolatry and their, their wicked king and queen. The coming of rain was a sign of God's blessing despite them and a sign perhaps in response to the repentance of some of the people. But Elijah's prayer was fervent. As best we know, he continued to pray to God in the intervening three and a half years. And God heard his prayer and God answered it. Note verse 18, the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. I think James is again um, perhaps looking back a little bit to how he talks about there's the fruit of um, 
someone who's speaking the things that honor God. There is the evil fruit of someone who's speaking things that dishonor God that we see back uh, toward the end of chapter 3. But he's also speaking physically the fact that earth is doing what it's supposed to do. God has answered his prayer. Things are going back to normal. And the reason for the change from drought to normal rain was one man's prayer expressed in faith as God worked through him. Why then does he go in verse 19 and 20 about turning people away from sins? Because again, I think one of the main things James is getting across with this passage is you may have someone who is suffering, someone who is joyful, someone who is sick. Building off the one who is sick, there are sins in the congregation that need to be dealt with. Confess them, bring them before God, earnestly plead with one another that they would be dealt with because the result of that is a blessing that honors God. If you turn a sinner from the error of his way, you will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's not ultimately the power of the one who's dragging the person back to God. It's not ultimately their power, it's God's power. Just like it's not their power that's healing the person in verse 15, it is God's power. And in both cases, the thing that defines it is... Do we come before God consistently in prayer, fervently believing that God has the power to hear and to answer our prayers, and waiting to see God work in those circumstances? And so to sum up the passage, in any circumstance of life, our default response ought to be, like the hymn says, take it to the Lord in prayer, right? You're suffering, God can help. You're joyful, God gets the credit. You're sick. Again, God is the great physician. He is the one who has the power to heal. You have sinned. God is the one who can forgive. So while there are things that this passage tells us that we ought to do toward one another, it's still primarily focused on what is our relationship to God in prayer. Is our prayer like Elijah's? I know that probably for many of us, we struggle to pray that way, right? Pray confidently to God about things that we know. Ironically, what Elijah did brought him hardship, right? Ahab hated him because he prayed that prayer. You've punished Israel. Ahab hated Elijah because of that. Are we willing to pray to God things that we know are the right things to pray, even if they're the things that will bring difficulty into our lives? Are we willing to pray expectantly that God can bring a blessing even knowing that there are cases when the people around us may not deserve it when we ourselves may not deserve it because Elijah was staying in a nation that had still not fully turned away turned back to God right when he prays that prayer and so there's just there's many more things that we could explore from this passage but I think one of the main points we need to take away is every circumstance of life ought to be brought to God in prayer Subset of that is suffering. Subset of that is joy. Connected with suffering, it could be in the form of sickness. That sickness could be because of sin. That sin could be ours. It could be someone else's. It could be the sinfulness of the world around us. In all of these things, God is glorified and good is accomplished in and for us when we come before God 
with the attitude that Elijah had, with the attitude that James commends to us. And whatever your belief about whether or not God does miraculous healings today, the main point is not about that. The main point is about do you come before God in believing prayer, expecting him to answer, and living in a way that you are in a position for him to answer and him to bless you. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a difficult passage. I pray that your truth will continue to sink into our hearts and to our, our lives. Lord, that we would develop the habit of turning to you in prayer, in praise or thanksgiving, which is yet another kind of prayer, in pleading for those around us, interceding for them, which is yet another kind of prayer, in confessing our sins, which ultimately is yet another kind of prayer, because we are confessing our sins to one another, but first and foremost to you. Lord, help us to be a praying people. Help us to be burdened about the spiritual condition of those around us. Help us to see that you have the power to heal the physical ailments that we have going on in our lives, some of which are great and trying even at this present time. And Lord, we ask that you would work in those things. We ask that you would heal Maggie of her cancer. We ask that you would uh, heal Mike's neck. We ask for uh, you would give strength to Jared with the pain that he has in his, Mike's back. Um, different things that Retta has going on in her body as well. Uh, things that I know that, that Millie struggles with. Lord, you can work in all of these things, and we have confidence that you certainly have the power that you could take them away right this moment. Lord, if that's your will, we would rejoice in it. Lord, if that is not your will, give us the grace in the midst of these circumstances that we might honor you and point those around us to you. Lord, we desire that these things would improve and that we would have relief from them and that those that we love would live lives that are more normal and more comfortable and all of those sorts of things. Uh, we pray, Lord, that if you answer in that way, that we would not quickly forget the lessons that the trials teach us of depending on you and coming before you regularly in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would do your will in all of these circumstances. We saw this morning that you are a God who waited 25 years to fulfill the promise that you had made to Abraham. Lord, are we willing to have that kind of patience in the fulfillment of your promises? Help us to have that kind of patience. Lord, do we believe that you will do what you have said that you can do, understanding it in the proper context of where we stand in church history and which of your people you are speaking to and what the specific promises are that are being made? Lord, help us to wrestle with these things because they are important that we would understand your word accurately. 
Lord, through all these things, draw us closer to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.